<clears throat> this is June 27th, 2021, and uh, I'm going to take up a koan this morning. It's number 19 in the Mumon Khan, the gateless barrier. Uh, ordinary mind is the way. This is number 19 in the Mumon Khan, and this is the case. Joshu asked Nansen, what is the way? Nansen answered, ordinary mind is the way. Joshu asked, shall I try to seek after it? If you try to seek after it, you go away from it, answered Nansen. Joshu, if I do not try for it, how can I know the way? Nansen, the way is not a matter of knowing or not knowing. Knowing is illusion. Not knowing is blankness. If you attain to this way of no doubt, it is as boundless as vast space. So how can there be right or wrong in the way? At these words, Joshua was suddenly enlightened. <clears throat> so uh, these, two, these two guys, Joshua and Nansen, figure in uh, inordinate number of the koans, especially Joshu, and uh, want to say a little bit about him. I know Roshi has uh, read from Zen's Chinese heritage <clears throat> quite often with these masters, but I found something elsewhere uh, about Joshu. in a book um, by Robert Aitken, Roshi Aitken. Robert Aitken uh, was a teacher at the uh, Diamond Sangha in Hawaii. And he wrote a really excellent book uh, just going through the Mumon Khan uh, entitled The Gateless Barrier. And he says this <clears throat> about Joshu. This is from his commentary on the Koan Mu, which of course involves Joshu as well said he had the longest and one of the most unusual careers of any Zen master. Born in, 17, excuse me, in 778, he came to study with Nansen when he was only 18 years old and remained until his old teacher died 40 years later. <clears throat> After two years of mourning, he set out on a pilgrimage to visit the many eminent teachers of his time. And on his departure, he is said to have vowed if I meet a hundred-year-old person who seeks my guidance, I will offer the best teaching I can to that venerable person. If I meet a seven-year-old child who can teach me, I will become an ardent disciple of that child. <clears throat> and Aitken comments, contrast this vow with Confucian attitudes toward age and youth that prevailed in Zhao Zhou's time, in Joshu's time. At age 60, he had freed himself of cultural constrictions as much as anyone can and had regained his beginner's mind. So Joshua went off on this pilgrimage and he says he maintained his vow for the next 20 years. 
wandering from teacher to teacher. He invited them to probe his mind, checking them as well, deepening and clarifying understanding. Through the Zen world. Finally, at 80, he settled down in a small temple and for the next 40 years guided disciples from his wonderfully seasoned understanding, passing away in his 120th years. <clears throat> a little more about him. Throughout his long career, Joshu taught in a simple matter, manner with just a few quiet words. It is said that a light seemed to play about his mouth as he spoke. Dogen, who freely criticized many of his ancestors in the Dharma, could only murmur with awe, Joshu, the old Buddha. It seems incredible that somebody could live to 120 years, but uh, <clears throat> we do have cases even here in the West uh, of ordinary people living that long. And Zen master Su Yun, uh, who uh, died in the 1900s, late in the 1900s, also is reported to have lived to the age of 120. And turning to uh, Andy Ferguson, Zen's Chinese heritage, just a little bit about Nansen or Nanchuan. He was a disciple of Matsu and the teacher of the famous Zhao Zhou or Joshu. His lay surname was Wang, and he came from Zhejiang in Zheng province. Please forgive my pronunciation. You know, for some of these Chinese words, you can go on the uh, on the internet and you can hear it pronounced by native Chinese speakers. And if you click more than one <clears throat> of those pronunciations, they'll be different. So, good luck. Even before he became an old Zen teacher, his students referred to him as Old Teacher Wang. Before meeting Matsu, he was already widely versed in the various schools and scriptures of Mahayana Buddhism. And at their first meeting, he is said to have instantly forgotten the net of delusions and delighted in samadhi. <clears throat> Just going to read one uh, little short little talk. Uh, that Nansen that Nansen gave uh, reflects a little bit on on this koan that we're taking up. The master entered the hall and addressed the monks, saying, "Dipamkara Buddha said, the arising in mind of a single thought gives birth to the myriad things." And then he goes on, "Why is it that phenomenal existence is empty? If there is nothing within mind." then how does one explain how the myriad things arise? Isn't it as if shadowy forms differentiate emptiness? This question is like someone grasping sound and placing it in a box or blowing into a net.
to fill it with air. Therefore, some old worthy said, it's not mind, it's not Buddha, it's not a thing. <clears throat> Incidentally, that old worthy was his own teacher, Matsu. Thus we must teach you, brethren, to go on a journey. It's said that bodhisattvas who have passed through the ten stages of development and attained the Sharangama Samadhi and the profound Dharma storehouse of all Buddhas naturally realize the pervasive, wondrous liberation of Zen Samadhi. Throughout all worlds, the form body is revealed and the highest awakening is manifested. The great wheel of Dharma is turned, Nirvana is entered, and limitless space can be placed in the hole on the point of a feather. Although a single phrase of scripture is recited for endless eons, its meaning is never exhausted. Its teaching transports countless billions of beings to the attainment of the unborn and enduring dharma. And that which is called knowledge or ignorance, even in the smallest amount, is completely contrary to the way. So difficult, so difficult. Take care. <clears throat> so coming back to our koan, this word way, ordinary mind is the way, um, this is the Chinese word Tao. And uh, of course, when Buddhism came to China, uh, the Chinese changed it. You know, they added <clears throat> their own flavor. And that's the way that it's come to us here in the Zen tradition. This word Tao was used to translate the Indian Buddhist terms Dharma as well as Bodhi. Both those words were rendered as Tao in Chinese when the sutras were translated. And Zen is really, in a sense, an amalgam of Indian Buddhism and Taoism as well as Confucianism. <clears throat> uh, the tremendous respect in uh, China and Japan and Korea for uh, our elders. It's one aspect of Confucianism and for an upright mind, for morality, for doing the right thing, for harmony, for getting along with others. So Joshua asks Nansen, what is the way? And Nansen replies, ordinary mind is the way. Boom, right there. Ordinary mind. It's what's right here. It's what's right here without going anywhere, <clears throat> without an effort. This is, this is <clears throat> so hard to wrap our minds around that it's not something special. Our life seems so humdrum and <clears throat> riven with dissension and anxiety and uh, <clears throat> bad vibes. Uh, 
our ordinary mind seems like a disaster. And many people come to practice wanting to get out of that disaster. And that, that's, not, that's not a mistake. Um, but it's too easy to reject what's right in front of us and fasten on some image that we've created or that's been created for us of a state somewhere out there, somewhere far away from where we are right now. Nonsense says, ordinary mind is the way. It goes against our natural understanding. We're always looking to get from here to there. Leave the humdrum and the tedious. Get to something miraculous. But what Nansen is pointing out is that right here is miraculous. This ordinary life is nirvana, to put it in <clears throat> Indian Buddhist terms. We just chanted the Hakuin verse. It says there, it's like one in water crying, I thirst. When this begins to sink in, and it does, the more we do zazen, the more we sit, the more we let go of thoughts, the more we rest in our natural awareness, the more we begin to realize that what we're looking for is right here. And when we do, it can galvanize us. When we see that we're living in truth, that the way, the Tao, is intimate and immediate. It's ordinary, it's nothing special, and yet it's what we long for. It's our long lost home. And, and the more we see that, the more if we're working on a koan, the more that strengthens our, our doubt mass. We realize it's so near, why can't we see it? And this really gets in deep. There's a, there's a corresponding deep interest in the practice. We want to put our attention there, to be with what's here, and not to go flying off into our speculation and ideas and worries and desires. There's a, <clears throat> I can't talk to everyone without dragging Anthony DeMello in and make this short. Uh, I've read this before, so I'll just summarize. Uh, he, he brings up the example of a scientist studying the behavior of ants. And he points out, unlike someone who's training a dog, <clears throat> He's not interested in making the ants do anything. He just wants to know all about them. He's interested in them for their own sake. Doesn't have an agenda. <clears throat> really, our practice is our own personal experiment. And we're totally in charge of this experiment, how we proceed looking into our own mind.
Well, Joshua lets that sink in, and then he says, shall I try to seek it? Shall I try to seek after it? <clears throat> and Nansen says, if you try to seek after it, you go away from it. <clears throat> so Joshua wants to know, how do I, basically, we can sum it up and say, how do I practice? How am I, okay, ordinary mind is the way. What do I do? <clears throat> and Nansen doesn't bite. He doesn't tell him what to do. He says, if you seek after it, you go away from it. Uh, Robert Aiken has a story. When he was uh, practicing, he and his wife in Tokyo, in Japan, says uh, late 1961, early 1962, they were uh, living on the outskirts of Tokyo and practicing with the Asatani Roshi, <clears throat> Roshi Kaplow's uh, primary teacher. And he says, we communicated with him surprisingly well, though he spoke no English. I spoke only broken Japanese, and Anne spoke no Japanese at all. Still, some of our subtle questions went unanswered. When Nakagawa Soen Roshi wrote us that he would be coming to Tokyo from his temple in Mishima, both of us looked forward to the chance to ask about our practice in detail. But I was sick when the day came, so Anne went by herself and asked my question, should I use effort or not? This question preoccupies many students and is essentially what Joshua asks, should I direct myself toward it or not? Anne came back late in the day, exhilarated as one always was after being with Soen Roshi, full of stories of her encounter. Finally, I was able to ask about my question. She laughed and replied, he said, that is a very difficult question. <laughs> I love that. It's maddening because as soon as you grasp after anything, you lose it. I, I remember, and I, I think this is in the Three Pillars of Zen somewhere, when Roshi Kaplow is first beginning to do Zazen, probably at Nakagawa Soen Roshi's place, which is where he started out. Uh, some Zen teacher or adept told him, I think I'm getting this right, there's a blind Buddha in your belly. He's very shy. Make him see. <clears throat> I think Sheng Yen does the most um, grandmotherly take on this, this whole issue with his image from the book titled the same, Catching a Feather on a Fan. just want to read through this. He says, stilling the mind is like catching a feather on a fan, or with a fan. Of course, he's talking about the uh, kind of fan that uh, you open up and you can wave it at your face and cool off. People probably wish they had such a fan right now. <laughs> he says, 
Every time you move the fan, the feather is likely to be blown away. It's a delicate business. To catch the, fe the feather, you have to hold the fan quite still just under the space through which the feather is sinking of its own motion. The feather then comes to rest on the top of the fan. You can imagine how difficult or how easy this may be. Any use of force and the feather is lost. Yet once you grasp the principle, it is something very easy to do. It needs patience and persistence. When practicing, do not be afraid of a distracting thought. If the body has a problem, do not be concerned with it. If the mind is worrying, put the worry down. Keep the mind on the method, waiting for the feather to sink onto the fan. I think that's about as good a job as you can describe it, but even that, what are you going to do with that? going to sit on the mat thinking about the fan and the feather. There's so many times in my own practice where I've hit on how to practice. <clears throat> Very exciting. And uh, <laughs> I know that things are going to go so much more smoothly. <laughs> that usually lasts maybe at most a block of session. <clears throat> There's, a, there's another um, instruction, sort of. This is much, much more to the point, much more spare from uh, the phenomenal Indian master teacher, Ramana Maharshi. Uh, most people don't know who he is, which drives me crazy. Someday maybe I'll give a Teisho on him. He died in 1950. <clears throat> he says this, Your duty is to be, and not to be this or that. I am that I am sums up the whole truth. <clears throat> the method is summed up in the words, Be still. What does stillness mean? It means destroy yourself, because any form or shape is the cause for trouble. Give up the notion that I am so-and-so. All that is required to realize the self is to be still. What can be easier than that? Notice here, <clears throat> Ramana Maharshi is saying, what can be easier? And when we read from Nansen, he said, difficult, difficult. <clears throat> I think most people understand that they're both right. way is not a matter of knowing or not knowing. Knowing is illusion, not knowing is blankness. We have a, a deep habit of mind to want to move from uncertainty to clarity. We want resolution. It's not only a habit, it's probably genetically programmed into us. We're built to take shortcuts, to overlook what isn't a threat or isn't a reward. 
So we look for a symbol or some sort of shorthand instead of the thing itself. But that knowing that we're looking for is an illusion. It's not the thing itself. And if we just go, duh, that's not it either. Reminds me of my uh, first dog. This is not Archie. This is Nora, another wonderful dog. She was, uh, she wanted people food. She wanted it pretty bad. And uh, <clears throat> this was our first dog, and we hadn't learned our lesson yet, and so we would, from time to time, share a scrap under the table. And it was, uh, it was quite surprising. You put a piece of food down, she'd be so excited. Here comes the food, here comes the food. Drop it on the floor, and she couldn't find it. Just looking, out, just so keyed up that she couldn't see what was right in front of her. <clears throat> Chasing after desire. We don't need someone to give us the answer. Need a little bit of instruction. Then we need to open our mind, see what's there. Something else I want to read. Um, I found this. I can't remember how I ran into this. This is the, the guy speaking is not a, a spiritual uh, teacher or student, so far as I know. He's uh, somebody who got a PhD in physics in June of 2019, so two years ago. And uh, he must have written this in a blog or something. He said, every part of teaching is challenging, and that extends beyond the lecture component. For example, my philosophy about office hours has always been, ironically enough, to be as useless as possible. If a student comes and asks me, how do you do problem number one, I ask them, how do you think we should do problem number one? And it's absolutely infuriating. But by the end of office hours, they are so thankful that they've struggled through it. My favorite physics author, David Moran, wrote in his recent book, Green-Eyed Dragons and Other Mathematical Monsters, that the one piece of advice he can offer about solving problems is not to look at these solutions too early. Once you see the answer, you can't undo that and come up with it yourself. So don't be afraid to just sit and get stuck and ponder because that's when you're really figuring out what to do. We could say that's when something deeper in the mind is figuring out what to do. That is the learning process. It takes so much patience and so much faith to be stuck and not to spin off into an easy answer, not to play with images, just to sit in that deep not knowing. There's not knowing that's blankness, as Nansen is pointing out, and then there's the not knowing of Bodhidharma. I don't know.
the German poet Rainer Maria Rilke said, be patient toward all that is unsolved in your heart and try to love the questions themselves like locked rooms and like books that are written in a very foreign tongue. Do not now seek the answers which cannot be given you because you would not be able to live them. And the point is to live everything. Live the questions now. This is the heart of Zen, the original teaching, a teaching beyond words and letters, pointing directly at the mind. attained to this way of no doubt it is as boundless as vast space so how can there be right or wrong in the way at these words Joshu was suddenly enlightened it's in a whole different dimension this is the tediousness of what we think of as ordinary mind good and bad like it and I don't like it. I know and I don't know. The two sides of one coin, possessing and not possessing. <clears throat> and so nonsense says, how can there be right and wrong in the way? I like, I like the way that uh, the Chinese, or at least Sheng Yen, refers to enlightenment as seeing the nature. We see. We don't necessarily have the ability to tell anybody else what we've seen. The phrase uh, somewhere, I think in, uh, in uh, the first koan of the Mumon Khan, like a mute person who's had a dream. And yet we've seen, uh, it's been compared, some ancient Chinese uh, metaphor, it's like coming across your long lost father at a crossroads. Go to the commentary. Muman says, Questioned by Joshu, Nansen, like melting ice and disintegrating tile, dissolved and could not offer a plausible explanation. Even though Joshu has come to realization, he must delve into it for another 30 years 
before he can understand it fully. So just taking that first sentence. How could Nansen offer a plausible explanation? This is, this is really praised by slander, which is Mumon's specialty. <clears throat> and then he strikes out at Joshu, what the heck. Even though Joshu has come to a realization, he must delve into it for another 30 years before he can understand it fully. This is such an important point in Zen practice. There isn't a finish line. You can't, you can't have some sort of insight, and, and for most people, the insight we're talking about is pretty faint. You can't take that and bottle it. And if you do, you're doing damage, doing damage to yourself and anybody you try to help. Ordinary mind is the way, not your special experience. So simple. Throw it out. Everything. See it, meet it, be it fully, let it go. <clears throat> Another 30 years before he can understand it fully. And what do we mean by understand? <clears throat> Joshua, Joshua remained, as we said, with Nansen until the latter's death. And then traveled on pilgrimage for another 20 years. Began teaching at the age of 80. Say anything over 70 is pretty damn old. <clears throat> And the verse, hundreds of flowers in spring, the moon in autumn, a cool breeze in summer, and snow in winter. If your mind is not clouded with unnecessary things, no season is too much for you. Our life just keeps bubbling up. It's wonderful when we're there with it. Hundreds of flowers, the moon in autumn, a cool breeze in summer, snow in winter. <clears throat> Reminds me of Zen master Uman said, every day is a good day. Wet and rainy in spring, cloudy sky in autumn, baking hot in summer, freezing in winter.
what practice shows us, what we learn through repeated practice, is how to move freely with conditions as they come up, without separation, without keeping score. It's wonderful. Everything lights up. People light up. We can just move with it. I want to finish by reading a little account from Mathieu Ricard, Ricard, a French Frenchman. He's the son of a very famous philosopher who uh, became a monk, a Tibetan monk in Tibetan Buddhism. And he recounted a conference uh, where a Japanese scientist who was studying the benefits of laughter on diabetes, of all things, uh, made a presentation. And the Dalai Lama was there at this conference, along with some monks and some scientists and other people, other visitors, about 100. And he ended with a question to the Dalai Lama. He said, Your Holiness, can you tell us what was the happiest moment of your life? A silence full of expectation fell in the room, composed of a dozen scientists, some Buddhist scholars and meditators, and a hundred guests. The Dalai Lama paused for a while, looked up in space, as if seeking an answer deep within himself, and then suddenly he leaned forward and said to the Japanese scholar in a resounding voice, I think, now! Everyone broke into a joyful laughter, and the meeting was adjourned. Delighted, the Japanese scholar was himself laughing heartily. <clears throat> All right, time is up. We'll stop now and recite the four vows. Thank <laughs> you.